Our scripture reading for today is from Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Lord, these words can be hard words for us sometimes. How can we hear them and take you for granted? Help us to listen well this morning with our hearts and our souls, really, more than just with our ears. Help give Pastor Andrew the words that he needs, to, that we need to hear. May our commitment to listen be deep and eternal with the power of Jesus' blood. Amen. Please be seated. What would it take to make you unstoppable? This is the word that Daniel Nairi, author of Everything Sad is Untrue, which incidentally, uh, some of the women are getting together to have a discussion about um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, this is the description that he gives of his mom. The Nairis were a refugee family. They had to escape from Iran uh, because of uh, religious persecution. Um, but uh, in his mind, his mother was unstoppable. Here is what he says. The legend of my mom is that she cannot be stopped. Not when you hit her. Not when a whole country of goons puts her in a cage. 
not even if you make her poor and try to kill her slowly in the little by little poison of sadness. Nothing can stop her. I think about that because uh, we don't have the exact same refugee story uh, that Daniel has, uh, but we know the little by little poison of sadness. We have loved ones that die. Uh, we see the, the various ills of the world. We are sad. We, we know what it's like and we feel like our country has put us in a cage. Uh, we've experienced a little bit of that here in America the last couple of years. We re enjoy remarkable freedoms, but it, it's been rough, you know, sort of navigating some of the political tensions, all of that. And of course, if we take ourselves outside of our country and you think of North Korea, you think of, you know, so many other places in the world where you're literally, your, your country puts you in a cage we think of what it means to be made poor. Uh, some of us experience that financially, maybe a job loss, uh, various different types of things, but there can be other types of poverty as well. Poverty of relationship, loneliness, you know, all of these different things. What, is it, what does it mean to become unstoppable? We are gonna be moving from Psalm 119 uh, back into Exodus. I say back because we, we started in Exodus a couple of years ago. We sort of uh, intended to come back to it last summer, but with the, um, with the pandemic, we, we went in a different direction, sticking with Elijah and Elisha. But uh, coming back to Exodus, and, and where we are in Exodus is we're meeting God's refugee people, uh, the people that had been in Egypt uh, and now were rescued out of Egypt. They were being led into the promised land. Uh, our study last time took us up to Sinai. There's sort of three locations that are important in our study of Exodus. There's Egypt and, and all that it symbolizes. Uh, which is, uh, you saw a little bit of it in the reading, you know, there's that broken spirit, harsh slavery. We remember that the people there were worshiping the gods of Egypt, and we're going to run back into that in Exodus chapter 32 as we come to that point. So Egypt is a place where they're far away from God, uh, both location-wise as, as well as um, sort of spiritually, they're, they're disconnected from who God is. They're sad, they're groaning. God hears their, their cry of pain, going back to Exodus chapter 2, and he intervenes. Then there's, uh, then, well, then there's the, the promised land where they're going to, uh, and, and we, ne we get the sense of that, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's all of this that's going to, and in between there's Sinai. And that's where we are right now. Actually, if you look at the, the, the broad scope of the Pentateuch, it's really interesting that uh, Exodus 1 to 19, you have this journey from Egypt to Sinai. Then from Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus, uh, through the first 10 chapters of Numbers, the whole, the whole thing takes place at Sinai. So Sinai as a location is really important, but but what's it important for? Uh, it is important because it is here at Sinai 
that God reforges his people, as it were. He, he draws them into this identity that he is inviting them into. He is establishing them as his treasured possession, as he says in Exodus 19, uh, 5 and 6, as his beloved, as we're going to see here. And actually, Exodus 24 is probably one of the most important chapters that people are not familiar with in the entire Bible, uh, because it is, it is this chapter that we see the ceremony of reforging, of, of, um, of covenant marriage in which God enters into with his people. So the way we're going to work our study is we're going to start here, kind of get the big picture of what's going on. Then we're going to go back uh, the next three weeks and we're going to look at the law and the book of the covenant that is in 21, 22, and 23. And then we'll continue on uh, with the book of Exodus uh, all the way to the end. That's our plan uh, for the summer. But I thought it was important to start here because this is really... Uh, this is really the most important thing that God is doing with his people is he's reforging them, he's making them, he's taking a nation of slaves, he's taken a nation of people with broken spirits, harsh slavery, and he's making them unstoppable. He's making them, he's giving them what they need to navigate the wilderness, what they need to navigate their own uh, sense of brokenness. He's giving them what they need to be his treasured possession. So how does he do it? Well, I want to highlight three things for you. A treaty, a wedding, <coughs> and an unforgettable meal. Uh, first of all, the treaty. You see a lot of this here uh, in this passage. Uh, the first two verses of our, the passage that we read today uh, Moses is getting the instructions, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, but Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. You get a sense here of how the tabernacle is going to be laid out. There's going to be, you know, uh, the holy of holies, the holy place, and then the courts of the people. And you can sort of see that, that structure already being laid out. This calls us back to Exodus 19, Exodus 20, where we saw some similar structure. Uh, but then the major thing that sort of holds our attention in verses 3 to 8 are the words uh, that God speaks. So verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. The people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So four times in these verses, we, we hear this repetition of all the words. Then we hear a talk of the book of the covenant and Moses writing all of these things down. What's going on in uh, Exodus 19, 20, all the way through, is we have uh, God's version of the what was called a suzerain-vassal treaty. So suzerain means king. And, and so when a king would conquer a people, he would enter into a treaty with them. And normal suzerain vassal treaties, they had stipulations, obligations, they had uh, blessings if you kept the, the terms of the treaty, curses if you broke the terms of the treaty. And we see all of that in the Pentateuch. 
you see it very clearly in Deuteronomy laid out in, in these ways, repeated as they're getting ready to enter the second generation, getting ready to enter the promised land. But God is dealing with them in a form that they understand. Uh, and, and God is dealing with them as this great king, this great king who has shown his power. Uh, he has shown his majesty as he is demonstrated in Egypt through the plagues, as he's demonstrated in bringing the people through the Red Sea. This is the greatest king, you know, the one who has wiped out the world's superpower at this time. And he's coming with his words, his rules, his obligations, all the stipulations. But here's where we have a little insight because we just got done studying Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, what we learned was that the rules and the stipulations, the obligations that God lays down for his people are gracious and they're loving. You know, the psalmist says when we follow God's law, we uh, we find ourselves in wide places. We know peace. We know shalom. And, and this is so shocking, I think, for the people of Israel because here they're getting these, these words and stipulations, but the central thesis is love. Love for God. Love for neighbor. Love for self. You know, as we go back and, and dip into what is uh, known as the Book of Covenant, we're, we're going to see ways in which God lays out fair treatment of, of slaves, uh, dealing with women and orphans in ways that were incredibly foreign uh, to the, the neighboring communities or the way that things were done at that particular time. There, there is so much in the way that God is coming to his people that speaks to them of love. Uh, one writer puts it this way, Ex Egypt erodes our ability to will something better for our lives. It stifles our capacity for freedom. Uh, more than, perhaps more than anything else, it squelches our God-given gift to love. Perhaps this is why uh, love occupies the central place in God's commandments. God knows that we're hurt. God knows that we need to be wooed back into a trusting relationship in the midst of our pain. Another writer, Jewish scholar Jacob Neusser, views the law-giving at Sinai as the defining moment in God's rescue plans. In this new identity as the people of God, Israel would get her dignity back. God's covenant and its corresponding law set Israel apart as a treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So God is entering into this treaty with his people, but it's a treaty, it's, uh, it, it's obligations, it's stipulations that at the heart of it uh, teach a people how to love and be loved. Teach a people what it's like to have security in who we are. And, and this is so, so important. You know, like we said, Egypt has eroded their ability to, to feel that. They couldn't hear the words of Moses we, we saw in Exodus chapter 6 and our call to confession. They couldn't hear the words of Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and because of the harsh slavery that we are in. And some of you are in your own Egypts right now. 
you experience that in, in very wa- various ways. Maybe they're Egypts of your own choosing. You know, maybe that, that thing that sort of started for you as just a small little escape has become a domineering slave master. Alcohol, pornography, uh, you know, eating. I mean, there are so many ways in which we are enslaved uh, shopping. Uh, we, we become enslaved to these things. Um, and we, we long for freedom. Maybe we, we are so beaten down, we can't even hear the notes of what freedom looks like. That's what I love about this passage uh, and this whole sort of narrative is the way that God comes and he says, I want, want to reestablish you as a people. Your, your ability to love has been eroded for various reasons. Uh, maybe it's been taken away from you. Uh, your ability to love has been eroded. But listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you again what it means to actually love. But it goes beyond just a set of rules. And I think this is the second thing that we see here is that God actually cares deeply. He loves his people, not just in a obligatory sort of way, but in a way that that speaks of intimacy, that speaks of deep relationship. One writer uh, puts it this way. He says, over and over, uh, God declares, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. We read that again, Exodus chapter 6 in the call to confession. The intimacy of these words with which God sets the tone for Israel's life and mission displays the heartbeat of God who will not settle for mere behavioral conformity or heartless obedience. Everything will be recentered around relationship and it's love that will define Israel's relationship uh, to their God. So what does he do? He, he marries his people. Uh, he, he invites them into not just a relationship of a suzerain and a vassal or of a king and a conquered country, but he actually marries his people. And we see that here in this text. If you look closely, you see verse 3, Moses came, he tells the people all the words of the Lord and the rules, and all the people answers with one voice, and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Recently, we had some couples that get married. When, when I do a wedding ceremony, we have the bride walk up and uh, the, the groom comes and stands next to her and we ask some questions and, and uh, they say, I, you know, is it your intent to marry this woman? It is. Is it your intent to marry this man? It is. You know, we have what's called the declaration of intent. In verse 3, we see the declaration of intent where the people say, yes, we will do this. And then as it carries out, verses 6, 7, and 8, you see the ceremony itself. Moses takes half of this blood, puts it in basins, half of the blood he throws on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. 
in accordance with all of these words. God marries his people. Uh, the vows are exchanged. Uh, they are given to one another. Now, uh, I, I know it's a little bit strange because there's lots of blood and, you know, they're throwing blood here and there, the altar on the people, uh, all of that. And, and so we, we come to these passages in the sort of the distance, the sociological distance of, of what's going on in Exodus 24 and the way that we experience weddings, all of that seems so foreign to us. Uh, but that's because it's not simply uh, the, the ceremony here, but also the reminder of what is needed. It's interesting, you know, Israel says, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. But what do we know about Israel? Uh, we know that it's not going to be long before they're saying to, uh, to Aaron, like, we miss the gods that we had in Egypt. Uh, and, and Aaron will take their jewelry and he'll throw it into the fire and out will come this golden calf and they'll resume worshiping in that way. We, we know that this generation of people uh, do not even have the faith to enter the promised land because of the giants in the land, which will cause a, a series of wanderings so that this generation of people will, be, uh, will all die in the wilderness and it's going to be their kids and grandkids that inherit the promised land. And, and we know that Israel is not alone in this. We know that Israel is a picture of our own hearts. Uh, so that all of our intentions, when, when we hear the, the movement of God towards us and, he, and, and the promise of wanting to marry us, we say yes, and, and we enter into it with great uh, enthusiasm. But enthusiasm doesn't keep us obedient. And before long, we have returned to our old gods, and we are seeking out other ways uh, to alleviate our pain and our harsh slavery. We find ourselves far apart from God. And so that's why the blood is necessary here. Uh, the blood, you know, the covenant, uh, all of this speaks back to Israel's history. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Psalm 119, and, and we said, one of the ways that we can read Psalm 119 as having been kept, and one of the ways the psalmist can say, I have kept all your laws, is because he is reading it covenantally. And he's going back to uh, Genesis 15 when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he cuts the animals. And then in putting Abraham to sleep in this vision, God himself walks through the pieces, and thus symbolizing to, to Abraham that he will keep all the obligations of the covenant. And if the covenant is broken, he himself will take the punishment that is due to covenant breaking. And something very similar is going on here. Here there is a sacrifice that is made Half the blood is thrown on the altar. Half the blood is uh, covering the people. And what we have here is, is the picture of the work of Christ. Uh, as he is the lamb who was slain 
for his people. He is the mediator, as we read in that Hebrews chapter 9 passage, which seems to be uh, referring specifically to this event in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, Christ is the, is the lamb who meets both the wrath of God and covers the people so that through the shed blood we are washed clean and we are brought into relationship with God. It's interesting, New Testament-wise, you know, two of the most prominent uh, pictures of who Christ is. Uh, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, and he is the bridegroom that comes and marries his people. A and here in Exodus 24, we see the picture of what God will do, the covenant that he makes with a people who are desperately needy, who have a lot of enthusiasm to get started, but who he knows cannot fulfill the obligations uh, of good laws that he puts into their life, laws that are for their own benefit and for their own good. And so God prefigures that he will do that in advance for them. It's interesting. Uh, I think it's verse 5. Uh, Moses sent the young men of the people of Israel who offered the burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Uh, you think about those young men. More than likely, and commentators point this out, uh, these were the, the firstborn. Uh, what, what's significant about the firstborn? Well, just a number of you know, months ago, the firstborn were spared because the blood of a lamb was shed on the lintel or their doorpost or around their place. And so as these young men go out to get the sacrifice, you know, they're, they're thinking about how their own lives have been spared uh, because of the blood of another. And they're bringing this sacrifice in and they're submitting it. And now God gives this picture to the whole people. What's ironic about this, or not so ironic, but, uh, you know, later on in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is being brought forward for trial and uh, Pilate is saying, his, his blood be on your hands, you know, uh, and, and the people respond, his blood shall be on our head. You know, this is, you know, they, they were saying something very different at that time. But this is what God was promising them. And Moses most likely, you know, took a, a branch of hyssop. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9. And he sprinkled this probably on the leaders. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people here. It's unlikely that Moses would... Uh, get this over every single people. I mean, that would be a lot of blood. Uh, but, you know, the Bible speaks covenantally. This is hard for us in our Western society because we're so individual-minded. But the, the Bible can speak of all and mean, you know, we got it on these 70 people because these 70 people represent and characterize us all uh, as a people. So as Moses does this, the blood falls on their head, and that's their promise, and that's their hope, and that's our hope as well. I hope you see that. 
Um, you know, as we, as we move into this story, what is Sinai about? How do we become unstoppable? It, it's about reminding us who we are as God's treasured possession. He pursues us, and he is so committed to us. He so loves his people that he commits to keeping all the obligations of the covenant. Uh, he knows that we will break them despite our enthusiasm. He knows that we will break them, and he commits, you know, through the shed blood of his son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the bridegroom who marries his bride, who presents her clean and holy using the words of Ephesians 5 or bright linens are given to her to wear, Revelation 19. This bridegroom who presents a bride clean and holy. How do you become unstoppable? You know that this is the God who you serve. And then lastly, uh, notice then this unforgettable meal. In many ways, this is the, the consummation of the, the ceremony that they have just gone through. You know, there has been this declaration of love, and now there is the intimacy that follows between God and his people. Moses and the elders, Nadab and Abihu. And incidentally, the, these were, you know, these names just make me so sad because think about these names that are here. You know, what do we know about them? We, we know that in a very few chapters, Aaron is going to make the golden calf. Uh, we know that Moses never makes it into the promised land. We know that Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 are going to be consumed by God's holy fire because they brought unholy fire into the tabernacle before the Lord. But these four, along with the 70 elders of Israel, go up and they see the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. You know, it's so interesting when the scriptures come to this, and you heard this in Ezekiel as well. When the scriptures come to trying to describe what it is to see God, like words are not sufficient. There was this pavement, as it were, like sapphire stone, you know, just grasping for words. And we saw this were in Ezekiel as well, like, as it were, this waste-like thing, and above the waste-like thing was this, and below the waste-like thing was this. You know, when we really see God for who he is, we really see God for who he is. Words fail us. Uh, some of you are familiar, um, you know, with, with the song, I Can Only Imagine, you know, just when we get to heaven, will we do these things? You know, when we stand before you, we just fall on our face and, and worship. There's just such a, an overwhelming sense of who God is and how different he is. But what I love about this, and what I love about this for the Nadabs, the Aarons, the Abihus, the Moseses amongst us, is that God is gracious. And, and he invites even these flawed people into his presence and he has a meal with them and you know notice what it says there i think it's verse 11 verse 11 uh he, he says 
He doesn't lay a hand on them. And they behold God and they eat and they drink. What does it take to be unstoppable? It, it takes uh, a, a resting, a believing uh, in this vision of God who is indescribable in his glory but invites flawed people to come into his presence and to eat and to drink, to not be consumed because he has fulfilled the obligations of the covenant. You know, this is why, you know, so regularly, you know, more than monthly, we come to the table, uh, we eat and drink. This is why God has given us the sacraments. He's given us baptism. He's given us the Lord's Supper so that by tangible signs, as the Westminster Confession puts it, things that we can touch, we can taste, we can smell, all of these things, we know, we know that God loves us, that God accepts us, that God fills us and, and moves us out into this world. Like, how do you face your Egypt? You face your Egypt filled with the promises of God. You face your Egypt filled with the promise that you are washed in the blood of Christ. You, you, you face your Egypt knowing that you are nourished with a, with a heavenly food that you can go forward and, and you can battle your depression. You can love your wayward child. You can just make it through uh, your day that is beset by pain and old age, all of these different things. How do we face our Egypt? We face our Egypt because we know that we are filled with the love of God, that he doesn't lay a hand on us because of what Christ has done, and we eat and we drink with him. Daniel Nairi, uh, he says, the legend of my mom is that she can't be stopped, not when you hit her, not when a whole country full of goons puts her in a cage, not even if you make her poor, try to kill her slowly, the little by little poison of sadness, we read that. And this legend is true, I think because she's fixed her eyes on something beyond the rivers of blood to a beautiful place on the other side. How else would anyone do it? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord fill your heart uh, this day with his great and precious promises, the finished work of Christ, uh, and with the promise that we're in Sinai now, but we're going to that promised land. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it means to a bunch of Moseses and Aaron's, what it means to a bunch of people who say, yes, we'll keep all the obligations of the law. But we fail day after day. We have broken spirits, uh, harsh slavery. Lord, we do pray that you would continue this reforging work in our life, that you would center us, ground us, uh, in the goodness of the law that you put out before us, uh, in the wonder of the marriage uh, that you have consummated with your people. And Father, I pray that as we take this into ourselves individually, 
that we would share it with one another corporately, that we would share it with the community that we live in because we know that Egypt's conditions prevail in this world today. So many people, broken spirits, harsh slavery. Father, uh, loosen our tongues, uh, lighten our steps. May there be uh, a, a joy, a lightness of being uh, that we display as people who are indeed your treasured possession. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.